Well, it would have been about this time, 2,000 years ago, that the disciples would have been sitting in the upper room, reflecting on the meaning of the events that had transpired earlier that morning. It was only a week earlier that their teacher and master, Jesus of Nazareth, had been welcomed into Jerusalem by throngs of people hailing Him as the promised Davidic King. In that moment, it probably seemed to these disciples that things could not get much better. They had not only found the Messiah, but they had gotten in on the ground floor. Jesus' stock was rising quickly, and it seemed as if it would only be a matter of time before the disciples' faith would pay off substantial dividends. But then just like that, the bottom fell out, and Jesus' stock came plummeting back to earth. It started with Jesus' cleansing of the temple on the previous Monday, which was then quickly followed by a heated dispute with the scribes and Pharisees on Tuesday, which ended with a blistering rebuke from Jesus. By Thursday night, there was an entourage of men coming out under the cover of darkness to arrest Jesus secretly. By Friday morning, He was a convicted blasphemer hanging on a Roman cross. By Friday evening, He was dead and buried. It's not hard to imagine both the fear and the disappointment that the disciples would have experienced on that Saturday that followed. As they sat holed away in the upper room where, for, where not two days earlier they had celebrated the Passover with Jesus. They believed that Jesus was the Christ. They believed He was the promised Son of David. They thought He was the one who would lift the curse that had been placed on Adam's descendants. They thought He was the one who would fulfill all the promises sworn to Abraham. They thought He was the one who would restore Israel and destroy the wicked and establish a golden age of peace and righteousness and blessing across the entire earth, all while reigning from the throne of David in Jerusalem. But instead His corpse was lying in a tomb just outside the city. It would have seemed from their perspective on Saturday that they had backed an imposter. Jesus was not the promised king. He was a deluded madman. Of course, this would have raised questions about how Jesus was able to do the things He did. Perhaps the disciples at that time considered whether or not the scribes and Pharisees had been right after all. Maybe Jesus had cast out demons by the power of Satan. Either way, He was at best delusional and at worst a fraud. And the disciples... They had backed him. They had teamed up with an imposter. We should have seen it, they might have thought. I mean, why would the Messiah have ever picked a bunch of no-names and fishermen to be his disciples? And what happened to Jesus, they probably assumed that this could be waiting for all of them as well if they were not careful. This is what the disciples might have been thinking on Saturday. But then on Sunday, the most inexplicable thing happened. Not long after dawn, some women had gone out to the tomb early in the morning to anoint Jesus' body, and and they came rushing back to the upper room, trembling and breathless. They said that the tomb was empty, that the stone blocking the entrance to the tomb had been rolled away, and the body of Jesus wasn't there. At first, they weren't sure what to think, but there were these angels there, and, and they told the women that Jesus had been raised from the dead. The first woman to report the news was, Mary Magdalene, she had apparently ran to the upper room immediately after this. She saw that the stone had been rolled away before the the angel even had time to explain to the women what had happened. When she got to the upper room, she, she only said that the tomb was empty, and she didn't know what happened to the body. 
Peter and John immediately left to check things out for themselves. They saw the empty tomb for themselves. And John, on his part, started to realize on his own what it all meant. Jesus had said that he would rise from the dead. And so John saw the empty tomb. And immediately, the scriptures say, he believed. Not long after that, Mary Magdalene was standing outside the tomb, still confused and weeping. And then Jesus actually appeared to her. And the other women, they too saw Jesus as they were returning to to tell the disciples what the angels had said to them. And as this news came pouring in, it would have suddenly dawned on the disciples that Jesus was no longer dead. Jesus had died, and He was buried in the tomb, but then He was raised from the dead. Jesus' corpse wasn't lying in a tomb outside of Jerusalem any longer because Jesus was alive. He was out there somewhere. And how this would have flipped everything back on its head again. As the disciples sat there on Sunday, trying to wrap their minds around what was happening, they would have started to realize that Jesus was the Messiah after all. They hadn't been wrong. They were actually more right than they had realized. He was the son of David. He would reverse the curse. He would fulfill the Abrahamic promises and restore Israel and usher in the golden age. And as they made this realization, and as they considered the implications of a resurrected Messiah, of a risen Davidic king, it's quite possible that they would have started to fathom for the very first time what Jesus had meant when He had said to them just a few months before this, when He told them that it was necessary for Him to, quote, go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and to be killed and on the third day be raised. It was necessary for it to happen this way. That's what Jesus said. And they started to realize this. It was necessary that this happened. The Messiah had to be a risen king. So this is all planned. Judas, betrayal, the cross, the empty tomb. It all had to happen exactly like this. So that the Messiah could be a risen king. And the implication of that thought, of having a risen king, was something far, far better than they could have imagined just a week earlier when the crowds were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. After all, Jesus may have been crucified by the nation's leaders, but he was resurrected with unmatched power. What power was that? And how did that power tie in to his messianic mission. What benefit is there to a risen king? What are the implications that the disciples might have started to mull over that morning as they began to consider the meaning of Christ's resurrection from the dead? That's what I want to work through with you today. Paul says in Romans 1, 3-4, that Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. That's what the resurrection from the dead proclaimed, that this Son of David was also the Son of God. How would that declaration have bolstered the disciples' faith 
in Jesus' ability to perform His mission, and how should it continue to encourage us today? That's what I want to explore this morning. Jesus' resurrection demonstrated that He possessed the power to perform three key aspects of the Messiah's mission And this power should continue to encourage us. Give us hope today, for today it should encourage us to be faithful to His mission. We'll see why that is in just a moment. I want to take a quick look at each of these aspects of Jesus' mission in turn. The first is this. The power to give life. The resurrection demonstrates that Jesus possesses the power to give life to the dead. One I think of, uh, one of the... Personally, I think one of the most beautiful and vivid passages of the Old Testament is found in Ezekiel 37. If you would, please turn there. Ezekiel 37. In Ezekiel 37, 1 to 10, Ezekiel says this, The hand of the Lord was upon me, And he brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophecy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophecy to the breath, prophecy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them. And they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. That's a breathtaking passage. Here you have this valley that is full of bones, this dry valley full of bones. God says to Ezekiel, do you think these bones can come alive? And Ezekiel says back, I really think that's something for you to answer, God. And so God commands Ezekiel, he says, prophecy to the bones and command them to come to life. So Ezekiel does. And then the bones start rattling and they lift up off the ground and they assemble themselves in skeletal form before muscles and flesh start regenerating on top of the bones. And God says, now tell them to breathe. And Ezekiel commands the breath to come and the wind, this wind comes spilling in from over the mountaintop surrounding this valley and it fills the lungs of these corpses and they breathe and they come to life. That's a resurrection. That's what we see in this passage. An incredibly dramatic and graphic vision of a resurrection. So what's this vision of? What's this resurrection about? We see the answers in verses 11 to 14. It says, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. 
Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. This vision, God explains, is a prediction of what's to come in the future. Ezekiel was a prophet during the day, the time of uh, Judah's captivity in Babylon. He prophesied that God had abandoned the temple and allowed Jerusalem to be conquered, and He removed the Davidic kings from power. But in this passage, God tells Ezekiel, listen, there's a day coming when I'm going to restore my people. The dead will actually come out of their graves. I will put my spirit in them and give them new life. And I will bring Israel into their land, and they will know me, and they will worship me. This was an Old Testament expectation. That God would one day raise the dead. It was a hope held by Job when he declared, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. According to Hebrews 11.19, it was the, the hope of the resurrection was the reason why Abraham was willing to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice. He believed, quote, that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Resurrection was the logical implication of God's promise to end the curse. The curse, of course, brought death onto our race, and God promised to one day send a descendant to end the curse by crushing the head of Satan, by destroying the one who, according to Hebrews 2.14, has the power of death. This descendant would put an end to death, and the implication of this promise is that in so doing, he would cause a resurrection from the dead. Understand, it really had to be that way. The hope of this Redeemer had to mean new life, even to those who are dead. Otherwise, there's little hope to be found in Him. There's little hope to be found in a Redeemer who's only going to give life to those who are already living when He comes. It's like what Paul points out in 1 Corinthians 15, 18. There has to be a resurrection, because if there's no resurrection, then every believer who's died has perished. The Old Testament saints understood this as well. They understood implicitly from Genesis 3.15, they knew there had to be a coming resurrection. And so as the Old Testament unfolded, what was revealed was that this resurrection would occur during the time of the Messiah. We see it in the passage we just read in Ezekiel 37. God speaks about this restoration that's going to occur in verses 11 to 14. Well, if we were to keep reading, what we would find is that in this restoration, God intends to reunify the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel under this restoration, and He intends to place them both under the rule of a single Davidic king in this day. We see this fact promoted in the book of Daniel as well, that this would be a resurrection that would happen in the days of the Messiah. Daniel received several prophecies concerning the timing of the coming Davidic king. And in the final vision recorded in this book, Daniel is told this. It says, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who is charge over your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. 
everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. There would be a resurrection from the dead in the days of the Messiah, Daniel was told. Some would be raised to eternal life, and some to eternal death. This is what the Old Testament taught. There would be a resurrection, and it would happen during the days of the Messiah. In fact, as Peter points out in Acts 2, Psalm 16 even predicted that the Messiah himself would be raised from the dead. In Psalm 16, 8-10, David says, I have set the Lord always before me, because He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see, uh, see corruption. As Peter points out, David couldn't have written that psalm in reference to himself, because David died and was buried and remained dead. But being a prophet, Peter explained, David, quote, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. The Old Testament predicted this, that there would be a resurrection, that the Messiah himself would be resurrected. Now, this isn't to say that this was all understood at the time. I mean, Peter himself was unable to comprehend what Jesus was talking about when he first revealed to Peter that he would suffer on the cross be buried, and then rise again on the third day. So it wasn't as if it was common knowledge that the Messiah would rise from the dead, or even that He would be the one to cause the future resurrection, but it was common knowledge that there would be a resurrection in the days of the Messiah. And so once the disciples saw that the tomb was empty, it would have started to click. The resurrection demonstrated that Jesus was the first fruits of this coming resurrection. There would be this coming resurrection in the days of the Messiah, and the Messiah himself would lead the charge. He would be the first to be raised from the dead. And the reason why this was so was because he was the one who would cause this resurrection. Again, he would be the one who would crush the head of the serpent. He would be the one who would reverse the curse. And the way he would do this, the disciples now understood, was by offering himself up as a substitute for sinners. He would suffer and die on behalf of sinners, and in dying he would take on the penalty of their sin on himself. This would free his people from the penalty of their sins so that they could rise again. But of course it meant that he had to die first. He had to die to pay the penalty for their sin, but he couldn't remain dead because he had to reign over Israel after the resurrection, and so he would be the first to rise from the dead. He would rise from the dead, and then after he was raised with the authority to destroy death, he would raise his people as well. This is one thing that the resurrection revealed about Jesus. It revealed that he possessed the power to give life. And to be clear, Jesus didn't possess this power because he was the son of David. After all, there were many other sons of David that, like David, were dead and buried. What made Jesus different was that he wasn't just the son of David, but the son of God as well. And the resurrection declared this fact. 
Again, Romans 1, 3-4 says that Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus said repeatedly that the reason why He would rise again was because He was, in fact, the Son of God. In John 5.26, Jesus says, For as the Father has life in Himself, so also has He granted the Son to have life in Himself. In John 10.17-18, He says, For this reason the Father loves Me, because I lay down My life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from Me, but I lay it down on My own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from My Father. This is why Jesus is able to rise again from the dead. The reason is because He is the God, the Son. He is the Creator of the heavens and the earth. He possesses life in Himself. Listen, He is the great I Am. So He can both kill and make alive. Because, John 1.3, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. That's where His authority to resurrect the dead comes from. And what the resurrection proved was that he had this authority. Again, he was declared to be the Son of God by power, in power by his resurrection from the dead. So the resurrection proved that Jesus is the one who has life in himself, that God has come in human flesh. This is why he can raise the dead, because he is God. But what the resurrection also demonstrated, that he, wasn't, he wasn't just God, but he is God come in human flesh. As a descendant of David. He is God come as Israel's king. All that power, all that authority has been transferred to that office. Think about the implications of this idea for a moment. You know, right now we're in the thick of a presidential election. And during a presidential election, you have all these men and women presenting themselves to the nation, trying to tell us what a great and wonderful president they will be. They try to convince us to vote for them by telling us all how we'll thrive under their leadership. They tell us about the wonderful legislation that they'll enact to make our lives better. But do you know at least one thing that none of these candidates can do? None of them can raise the dead. None of them can bring you back to life after you die. I mean, they can talk about national health care plans and the Affordable Health Care Act and Medicaid, you name it, but the fact remains, they can't finally prevent you from dying. And after you die, they cannot bring you back to life. I think it's important that you realize this. There are a lot of people kind of panicked right now over the direction of our country and what the results of the election will be. And listen, I don't mean to be overly simplistic here. I understand that, relatively speaking, there's a lot riding on this election. But you know what is not riding on this election? Your eternal destiny. I don't care who you vote for. The eventual result for each of you will be the same. You'll die. Your children, your great-grandchildren, they'll all die one day too. doesn't matter who you vote for. It can be Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton or Ted Cruz or Bernie Sanders or John Kasich. No matter who's elected, we'll all end up the same. Now, true, there may be one candidate that might help us live a little longer before we die. And there may be one who can ensure we'll have a little more cash in our pockets when we die. But at the end of the day, none of these candidates can really give you anything of any substantial consequence because in the end, you'll all still die no matter who you vote for. 
And this means that none of these candidates can really take anything from you and none of them can offer you any real hope. That's what they're all trying to convince you of, that a brighter future lies ahead of you with them as your president. But the truth is that they're all relatively powerless in the grand scheme of things. There's no real hope found in any of them. Now, if you had a candidate that was promising eternal life, that'd be different. There's real hope in that kind of a platform if they can do it. And that's what the disciples had. That's what we have in Jesus. The empty tomb declares that He is the Son of God, the one who has life in Himself, who possesses the authority now to raise the dead. There are a lot of political leaders who can try to prove their qualifications by pointing to a long list of experience and credentials. But understand, there's only one resurrected king. There's only one ruler who can promise eternal life and then point to his ability to deliver on that message through his own resurrection from the dead, and that's Jesus. This is how the resurrection would have started to transform the disciples' understanding of Jesus. The disciples thought that Jesus was going to be an amazing king before. You know, with his ability to cast out demons and heal the sick and multiply loaves and fishes. I mean, his power was unmatched even before his resurrection from the dead. But after, they would have, they would have realized that it was actually so much more than what they had ever thought before. Jesus wasn't just the son of David. He was the son of God. He was the one who had life in himself. And what did that mean? Well, for one... It meant that the son of David now had power to raise the dead. It meant Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37 is an interesting passage, by the way, because it highlights another aspect of this risen king's power. And that's his power to protect. That's our second point for today. The resurrection demonstrates that Jesus has the power to protect his people. You see this point highlighted in verses 22 to 28, where after this resurrection and reunification of Israel, God says this, Ezekiel 37, 22 to 28, And I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them all. And they shall no longer be two nations, and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols, and their detestable things, or any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David my servant shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them, it shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them, and will, uh, will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel, when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Again, that's a beautiful promise. God says that after this restoration happens, He's going to wash Israel clean of all their sins, and He's going to dwell among them again as He did before, before the exile. And through this restoration, God will glorify Himself before the nations. In other words, Israel will finally accomplish her mission. 
And what shouldn't be missed in the midst of this promise is that in this day, in this post-resurrection world, God would give Israel a Davidic king to shepherd the nation. He will lead them, and He will protect them, as a shepherd does his own sheep. This too was a hope that the Old Testament saints longed for. They longed to be able to serve God without fear, to be protected. This was actually the reason for the exodus from Egypt and the possession of the land of Canaan. You'll recall that when Israel was in slavery in Egypt, they were essentially under the rule of pagan idols. Well, the first request that Moses made to Pharaoh was to simply allow Israel to go out into the wilderness to observe a feast to God. Pharaoh wouldn't allow Israel to do this, and then you know the rest of the story. Israel was freed from slavery in Egypt, but they weren't freed for freedom's sake. They were freed in order to serve and worship God. This is why God made the Mosaic Covenant immediately after this and then promised to dwell among them and protect them. It was all so that Israel might be able to serve God and in serving God, glorify His name before the nations. In a sense, you could almost say they weren't freed, actually. They were just purchased. God redeemed them from slavery under Pharaoh so that they could serve and worship Him. And He gave them the land of Canaan so that they could do this without pagan interference. Understand, that was the purpose of the land promise. It was never land for land's sake. It was freedom as a nation so that Israel could be constituted under God's rule instead of being enslaved to Gentiles and their idols. Unfortunately, Israel failed to keep their covenant with God. They didn't use their freedom for its intended purpose. Instead, they kept running headlong into the arms of foreign idols. And so God removed His protective presence from Israel and sold them back into the hands of their foreign slave masters. But understand, when He did this, He promised to one day give them a new heart so that they would serve Him. And He said that when this happened, He would restore their freedom to them and dwell with them again so that they could serve Him again in holiness. This is exactly what we just read in Ezekiel 37, actually. And what was consistent with these types of promises was that in that day, God would give Israel a king to protect them from the foreign nations that constantly harassed them and kept them from worshiping their God. This is why when Jesus was born, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, prophesied, he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people, and He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath that He swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. David was a warrior king. He was the slayer of Goliath. And so it was understood that the great Davidic king would be a warrior like his father before him. He would be the great protector of Israel. And there are numerous psalms that speak to this point, by the way. Probably the most significant of these is Psalm 110. In Psalm 110, David writes, he says, The Lord sits to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. This psalm is significant because, as Jesus himself noted, that psalm predicted that the Messiah, 
had to be God. According to verse 1, the Messiah is both David's son and his Lord. That indicates an authority over David that was not the norm for children in Jesus' day. Well, in this psalm, the Davidic king is given life to rule in the midst of his enemies. His enemies will surround him, but they will not overcome him or rob him of his power. And this authority, you will note, comes from God. God says to the Davidic son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That was the Old Testament picture of the coming Messianic king. He was the divine son of David, invested with all the power and authority of God for the protection of his people. What the resurrection would have proven to the disciples was that Jesus was not only the first fruits of the resurrection that would occur in the days of this latter Davidic king, it would have also confirmed that Jesus was the Son of God, who was raised with the requisite power needed to defend his people from their enemies. And again, Jesus possessed this power in eternity past as God the Son, but after His resurrection from the dead, that power is conferred on Him as a a man as well. This is what He tells His disciples after His resurrection from the dead. Matthew 28, 19-20, the Great Commission. It begins with Jesus telling His disciples, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Me. He had that power as God the Son in eternity past, but for there to be a second Adam, for there to be one who could crush the head of the serpent and restore mankind to the place of dominion over the planet, for there to be a second David, a greater David, one with authority to rule all of Israel's enemies, that power had had to be bestowed on one of David's descendants, on one of Adam's descendants. And the problem was that there was no man qualified to receive this kind of authority. Because all were sinners. They're all sinners who dishonor God and disobey His commands. And so God the Son became a man. He lived a life of perfect obedience as a man. And through His obedience, received that power from the Father as a man. He made it possible for a son of Adam, a son of David, to rule with His perfect authority by providing the obedience necessary to be deserving of that kind of power. As it says in Philippians 2, 5-11, Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then he says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Part of what the resurrection was intended to demonstrate was that God had bestowed this kind of complete power on Jesus, that he had been given the authority necessary to conquer all of God's enemies, including death. As it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20-28, if you would, go ahead and turn there. 1 Corinthians 15, 20-28. We read this for our call to worship this morning. In this passage, Paul is talking about how there has to be a future resurrection because Christ Himself was raised from the dead. And as he explains this, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20-28, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to, enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that He has accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. So once again, Jesus' resurrection pointed to a future resurrection. That's part of what the resurrection pointed to. But one of the other things that it pointed to was the fact that Jesus had been raised with the authority to subject the entire planet to God's rule. That authority is demonstrated in the fact that Jesus already, listen to this, Jesus has already subjected the very last enemy that will be subjected, death, through His resurrection from the dead. In other words, Jesus' resurrection proves that He possesses the authority to subject all things to God because He has already demonstrated His power over the very last, the very final enemy that will be subjected, which is death. So what does this mean? It means that Jesus has authority to protect His people. Jesus actually demonstrated that he had been given this authority really throughout his ministry. That was part of the significance of the calming of the storm and the exorcisms and the healings. These things demonstrated that Jesus possessed power over both the natural and supernatural realm. But this power was then magnified through his resurrection from the dead. And again, think of the significance of this. Once again, we're in the midst of this presidential election. I think it's fair to say that one of the primary concerns in this election has been national security. You have the Clinton email scandal, which is really a scandal that revolves around national security concerns. You have Donald Trump saying he's going to build a wall on the Mexican border, put a temporary stay on Muslim integration, and his polling is big. He's polling big in large part because of these positions. And of course, you have other Republican candidates trying to vie for position by talking about how their answer to groups like ISIS is is better than his. Just this last week, there was a bombing in Brussels, reportedly organized by ISIS. And it would seem that this bombing occurred in response to the arrest of a man who helped plan the Paris attacks back in November. Just last week, the House of Representatives unanimously approved a resolution declaring ISIS's persecution of Christians in Iraq and Syria genocide. Tensions are escalating with China over the South China Sea. North and South Korea are edging closer and closer to war. For a moment in November, it seemed as if war could actually break out between Russia and NATO. There are concerns over the stability of our, of our economy, concerns over the impacts of various types of civil legislation on the free exercise of religion, and people are scared. A lot of people are scared. And this is how the disciples and the other Israelites would have felt in the time of Christ. They were scared. Imagine if ISIS were able to actually capture the United States. If you could picture what that would be like, then you could picture what it was like for the average Israelite to live under the Roman rule. 
They had been stripped of their freedom, stripped of the free exercise of their religion. They couldn't organize their society in the way that they saw fit. Instead, they had to follow the commands of a bunch of unclean, polytheistic, pagan idolaters who were motivated by little more than greed and arrogant pride and who accomplished their ends by sheer brutality. That's probably hard for us to fathom because I think the Romans tend to be admired in our society. But this is how repulsive it would have been for an Israelite to live under Roman rule. And it wasn't just this way for the Romans, it was the same for the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks before that. What Jesus' resurrection proclaimed was that he had the authority to put an end to this sort of idolatrous barbarism. He could defend his people, he could bring them peace. Doesn't that sound appealing? Isn't that something to take hope in? Again, here's a man who has actually proven through his resurrection from the dead that he can subject all things under God's rule. We now know that he can establish righteousness and justice across the entire face of the earth. Doesn't that sound amazing? That's exciting. Wouldn't you want to live in a world where guys like ISIS are completely neutralized? Where they hold absolutely no power? Well, if so, I have great news because that day is coming and Jesus' resurrection has proved it. But there's a catch. There's a catch. And it's tied to our third point, which is this. Number three, Jesus' resurrection demonstrates that he has the power to execute justice. The risen king has power, number one, to give life, number two, to protect his people, and number three, to execute justice. To be honest, this is the part of the resurrection that we don't like to talk about. This is the one that makes us squirm in our chairs. It's the part that we like to brush past because it makes us uncomfortable. This Davidic king, the Old Testament didn't just predict that he would resurrect the saints and place them back into the land under his divine protection. It predicted that he would do this by destroying the wicked. In fact, this is how he would manage to protect his people. This is how he would manage to establish righteousness and justice across the face of the entire earth. It was the destruction of the wicked. Peace would reign, but it would reign because those who threatened peace would be destroyed. Again, the Old Testament predicted this, and it spoke about it in brutally vivid terms. For instance, uh, a moment ago I read verses 1 to 2 of Psalm 110. This psalm which Jesus himself, again, used to prove that the Messiah had to be the Son of God. And in those verses we saw that God would give the the Messiah the authority to rule in the midst of his enemies. Well, if I were to keep going, this is what we would find in verses 5 to 6. It says, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Psalm 2, 7-12, also a Messianic psalm, says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. 
In verse 10 it says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. You know, we tend to think of the Messiah's mission only in terms of the redemption that He would accomplish, and this only in respect of the forgiveness of sins that He would accomplish at the cross. What we miss is what is said in 1 Corinthians 15, 25-28. If you're still there in that passage, look at these verses once again. Jesus, it says, must reign until He has put His enemies under His feet. 4, verse 27, God has put all things in subjection under His feet. In verse 28, when all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. Do you understand? This is what Jesus is redeeming, ultimately. He's not just redeeming sinners. He's redeeming the glory of God. He has been sent to restore God's rule over the planet. The first Adam rejected God's mandate to rule in God's image. The second Adam, though, has accepted that mission. And after the resurrection, he has been given authority to see it accomplished. Listen, I know we don't like to think about this, because this is humbling But this is what Jesus cares about even more than where you will spend eternity, the glory of His Father. He will see His Father glorified, even if He must slay the wicked to do it. And He has been sent to the earth for this very purpose. What the resurrection verifies is that Jesus has already received this authority. Again, He has already demonstrated His authority over the very last enemy that He will destroy, which is death. This means that He now, presently, right now, has the authority to conquer everything in between. Now, on one hand, that's encouraging. Again, the resurrection means that guys like ISIS will lose. Not maybe. It's already decided. That's great news to think of what the earth will be like once evil is purged from it. Israel, guys like David, listen, they looked forward. I know, again, we don't, we don't like to acknowledge this, but they looked forward to the destruction of the wicked for this purpose. But at the same time, the resurrection is also terrifying. It's encouraging on one hand, but it's also terrifying. Listen, I know we like to come to church on Easter Sunday and be encouraged by the good news of the resurrection. And the resurrection is good news. But it's good news to those who are in Christ. It's good news to those who have Psalm 2, kiss the Son. You see, it's only half the story to say that the resurrection is good news. It's good news to those who are in Christ, but to everyone else, the resurrection is a proclamation of doom. Do you know how Peter's audience reacted when he explained the Holy Spirit's outpouring at Pentecost with Christ's resurrection from the dead? Do you know how they responded? With utter terror. They said to Peter, you know, how is it that these uneducated Galileans are speaking in these foreign tongues? What does this all mean? And Peter responds by saying, it means that the day of the Lord is near because the man you put to death, he was the Messiah and he has been raised from the dead to usher in the kingdom of heaven. That's the summary of Peter's Pentecost message. And do you know how the crowd responded when they heard this? They said, brothers, what shall we do? They're panicked. 
They're panicked because they realize that Jesus was raised with the power to destroy the wicked. And up till that point, that would include them. They had put Jesus to death. They had put the Psalm 2, the Psalm 110 Davidic king to death. And that meant that they would be on the wrong side of the law when judgment came. And so they say, so what do we do? How can we escape from the wrath of God? And Peter says, repent and we baptize each of you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He says, turn and pay homage to the Son. Recognize God's King. Repent and you can be saved. That is how Peter preached the resurrection. Again, this makes us uncomfortable. This makes us squirm in our chairs. We don't like to talk about this, but this is what the resurrection means. The resurrection means that Jesus was slain a suffering servant, but he was raised a victorious king. And he was raised as a king with absolute and utter authority to crush the wicked. This is what Jesus himself declares in John 5, 25-29. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus has been raised to execute justice. And that's a problem. Because we're all wicked. We're all deserving of death. The resurrection, in that sense, is terrifying. So we've seen what a risen king would have meant to the early apostles. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead meant that he had power to give life, he had power to protect his people, and he had power to execute justice. How should we respond to these truths? What should we do with this information? There's actually many applications to this truth, but I would say that there are really just two core applications. And which of these applications applies to you really depends on your status with Christ. First, if you are not in Christ, then the resurrection means that you must repent. Is the resurrection a sign for hope? Certainly, it's a sign for hope. It signals the death of death. It signals the coming of a future kingdom where justice reigns and sin and evil are no more. It is a promise of a life of eternal bliss. But, and here's the condition that has to be attached to Easter, but it promises this to those who are in Christ. That's just the plain fact of the matter. To everyone else it warns destruction. Again, I understand we don't like to hear that. We don't like to think about that. That's not a very tolerant or loving thing to say according to our society's standards of of tolerance and love. But that's what Jesus and the apostles taught. And to be clear, if it didn't warn of this, if if the resurrection didn't warn of this, then there would have been no reason for Jesus to rise from the grave in the first place. And I say this because without the cross, there is no resurrection. If God didn't judge sin, then Jesus wouldn't have needed to die for our sin in the first place. And so He would have never come out of the empty tomb either. He would, never, he, would, he, would, he would have remained in heaven without ever becoming a man to begin with. Do you understand? For us to hope that there will one day be an end to death, we must believe that there's something causing death that can be removed. If there isn't something causing death, if death just is, then we can't ever have hope that we will live again. 
Death is unbeatable then. It's an enigma that can't be solved. If death is going to be conquered, if we're going to have hope that we can live again, then there has to be a reason for it. A reason that can be answered. And the Scriptures tell us that that reason is sin. That's why we die. We die because of our sin. On one hand, that's great news because it means that death can be solved. Take care of the sin problem and you take care of the death problem. There's hope in that kind of an understanding of death. But again, in order to have that hope, there must be a recognition that God punishes sin because again, that's the reason for death. So we can't escape this. We can't have hope in a future resurrection without also recognizing God's judgment of sin. The two are intertwined. And so this is what Easter really means. It's a sign for hope, yes, but at the same time, it's a call to repentance. And so if you are not in Christ, you must determine what you will do with this call. You must decide how you will will respond to the resurrection. Will you reject this call to repentance? For instance, will you perhaps try to say that the resurrection never happened? That's how the world responds to the resurrection. They deny its demand for repentance by saying it never happened. It's all fiction. You could try to go that route, except you'd be wrong. And not only would you be facing the prospect of judgment in eternity, but you would have no hope in this life as well. That's the trade-off that the world gets when they deny the resurrection. They not only deceive themselves into thinking that they will not have to answer for their sins, but they also live this life under the shadow of death, believing death to be final. They live deceived and without hope. So, you could reject this call to repentance and you could live like that, or you could repent. You can acknowledge the resurrection. You can acknowledge the judgment against sin that it implies. And you can repent by acknowledging God's King. And you can come to Him confessing your sin and begging for His mercy. And understand that if you do this, He will grant it to you. He would delight to grant it to you. After all, that's actually why He died in the first place. To offer Himself up as a substitute for sinners so that He could grant forgiveness. Yes, He judges sin, but He also forgives everyone who comes to Him in faith. So repent. That's how you should respond to the resurrection if you are not in Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved from your sins. If you are in Christ, then you must preach. That's how you respond to the resurrection if you are in Christ. You preach. This is how Jesus told the disciples to respond to His resurrection. Right? He said, Matthew 28, 18-20, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The resurrection means that the King is risen from the dead. And He has been risen in order to execute judgment, but, but He is also merciful. And He is patient. And He desires all to come to salvation. And so He waits. He waits at the right hand of His Father until the Father sends Him. And the Father waits. He does not send His Son. Because before that that judgment comes, He wants people to hear about the resurrection so they can repent. God waits so that His disciples can serve as witnesses to His resurrection so that many can believe and be saved. 
And this means that you must preach. You must preach the resurrection and you must preach it urgently. Do you understand? He's already risen. He already has the authority to judge the earth. He can come at any time. And this means that you must go and tell people the good news that Jesus has been pardoned, has offered pardon through His death on the cross with great urgency. And you must preach not only with urgency, but with hope. Understand that as you preach, you will bear fruit. Again, the resurrection testifies to the fact that Jesus now presently possesses all authority over this earth. This means that, that one of the truths that the resurrection proclaims is that as you preach, Jesus has the power to give life. He has the power to give spiritual life, to make alive, so that people will respond to that message and be saved. So that is what the resurrection is a sign of for you If you are in Christ, you must preach. As we close this morning, let's pray that God would give us the grace to respond to these truths and to bear much fruit. Let's pray.